It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. The Michael Reed Show Podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at LMFM.ie Monday morning, the 27th of September. Good morning, with much debate and discussion from now till 11am. This is Michael Reed on LMFM. Last Thursday, we asked a Fine Gael TD and a Fianna Fáil TD, both based in County Meath, about our ladies' hospital in Navan. Neither Minister Damien English or Minister Thomas Byrne were available to us on Friday. Both ministers said they would speak to us about the rumours that our ladies' hospital in Navan is about to be downgraded this week. We'll look forward to hearing from the ministers if they do become available to us on one of the days later in the week. Unfortunately, neither minister has been able to tell us on or off-air since Thursday of last week that the emergency department in Navan is not about to close or that the ICU beds will not be taken out of the hospital. A statement to Padre Tobin TB, TD from uh, the Minister for Health would give cause for concern and statements to LMFM from the HSE give a very clear impression that this is what is actually about to happen. The emergency department, it seems, is about to close and the ICU beds are about to be removed. Our ladies in Navan is about to be downgraded. That's how it seems. Uh, as I said, that's the very clear impression we have from the HSE, but it is only an impression. To be frank, though, the HSE has been fobbing LMFM off since Thursday of last week, and there is no doubt that the HSE is avoiding media queries. The HSE has decided it will not tell people in County Meath what it is planning to do with the hospital in County Meath. A statement from the HSE to LMFM last week said the HSE is developing an implementation plan for changing the services provided in Our Ladies. We asked if we could see this plan. In response, the HSE emailed us a link to a report that was published eight years ago. Eight years ago. Just crazy stuff. A total insult, disrespectful to the people of County Meath. So we wrote back and we tried to ask our questions clearly and we tried to put them simply so that there was no confusion. We said we'd like to know what was involved in the implementation plan that they're developing now, not a report from eight years ago. Thank you very much. 
uh, we said we wanted to know about the implementation plan that they had referred to in their the statement that would be of relevance now. And we said we had three simple questions that we would like answered. Uh, will the emergency department hours in the hospital be reduced in the first instance? And when is that plan to take effect? The second question we asked was, will the emergency department close entirely and when? And the third question we asked was, what is the future of the ICU? Now, we sent those questions on Friday morning to the HSE. They never responded. It's, to my mind, contemptuous to the people who are paying their wages, the people who they serve in County Mead, the people who the hospitals serve in County Mead. So we thought, well, maybe it's not that bad. Uh, We'll just check with them. And the HSE received an email from us this morning telling them that we will be going on the radio today saying that the HSE has not responded to our request for more detailed information on the future plans for services at Our Lady's Hospital in Avon. The HSE has responded and they have said we have nothing further to provide at this time other than the statement that we provided to you on Friday. (laughs) I just... I do not understand... I don't know if I've ever seen a response like that uh, to a media query which is made on behalf of the people listening to the programme who uh, have not only an interest in what's happening in the hospital but a vested interest because uh, it's a public hospital provided to the public through public funding. Uh, And the public servants uh, who are making the decisions about this are not telling the people who are paying for it what they're going to do. They're, They're just not telling us one way or another. Uh, Darren O'Rourke is a Sinn Féin TD for me. The East Petter Tobin is uh, la- uh, leader and founder of the N2 party and uh, TD for Mead West uh, and uh, has been raising this issue since the 15th of uh, September. Uh, got a, a written response uh, from the Minister last week. Uh, raised it with uh, the Taunch in the doll last week who said, yeah, I don't know, maybe you could be right, maybe something is happening. Uh, but he didn't have anything to say either. He said he'd asked the Minister for Health who was sitting beside him. Uh, but uh, I don't know, has he managed to come back to you since then, Petter Tobin? at all from um, either the Taoiseach or the Taunashta or the Minister for Health and um, I agree with your criticism of the HSE there but the, the truth of the matter is that these are public servants who are answerable to the government, to the elected representatives and the elected representatives that are responsible and answerable to the people and the fact that you know you, we have two ministers, three ministers really, but two ministers on duty at the moment who can't come on local radio and articulate exactly what the plan of the government is in relation to this is incredibly wrong. Just so you know, uh, the HSE uh, are about to get another email. It's probably arrived now uh, because uh, the last email that I I read out uh, arrived to us uh, just before we came on on air and they said they've nothing further to provide at this time. Now, uh, there's no doubt the HSE are listening to us right now. Uh, So to save them the bother of having to read our reply to that, uh, we can tell them what we're saying in the reply, which is, why not? Why can't they provide us with uh, some more information than allowing this rumour to continue and to grow and to get legs? Uh, Why can't they not come out and say it's not true or come out and tell us that it is true and explain the logic behind making this decision? Yeah, I, I agree. The whole process has been cloak and dagger from the start. Um, very seldom do the HSE show their, their hand. Um, even back last March, when you know, March in 2020, when the whole uh, COVID crisis was kicking off, uh, there was rumours abounding at that time. And uh, we found out that the HSE then were going to close 
the A&E at the end of March 2020. And only because COVID kicked off, they decided to stop um, and they postponed it. But it just it frustrates me in a big way because we have this situation whereby Ireland has a weakness, a lack of capacity in emergency beds and in ICU beds. And that was one of the reasons why we weren't able to battle COVID in the way we should have been. Now, we've put a request into the HSE, into the Ireland East group now, uh, for the, the head of the Ireland East group to meet with the Save Navin Hospital campaign ASAP to discuss exactly what's happening. We've already met with the unions there last Friday uh, in relation to what's happening in the hospital. And we're hoping to have a public meeting of the Save Navin Hospital campaign this Thursday evening uh, in the Newgrange Hotel at 8 o'clock. It has to be confirmed yet. Uh, due to COVID regulations, we want to make sure exactly that how many people we can get into that room safely uh, on the night. But our plan is to, to ramp up a, a, a series of protests to stop the HSE and this government going down the route of closing the A&E in, in this county. Darren O'Rourke, uh, I think uh, what would be appropriate would be that instead of uh, HSE officials emailing the local radio station, that the head of uh, the hospital group would be on the local radio station telling people uh, who the hospital serves what is happening and why the changes are occurring. Would you agree? Absolutely, Michael, and and, and thanks for for covering this issue. Um, I think it's, it's... you know, people will be very familiar with the um, approach taken by the HSE, and this is almost a textbook. Um, we've seen it uh, replicated in in other places as well. Um, I think there there are very real concerns, and they are exacerbated when there's a, an information vacuum. Um, I know my colleague Johnny Gurk has written to me TDs um, looking for. Uh, support in his call for a doll debate, a, a topical issue debate, uh, which hopefully if we get the support of the other Mead TDs, and I'm happy to be included in that, we, we would secure time uh, with the minister tomorrow evening um, uh, to specifically get the responses that we have sought from from the department, from the minister, and from the from the HSC. I think that would be a, a <laughs> well, welcome opportunity. And we absolutely uh, need that. Uh, yeah, I, I take it you mean but Helen McEntee is on maternity leave, so I take it you're looking for the support then of Damien English and Thomas Byrne. Well, well, absolutely, absolutely. I think I think you know, um, <laughs> outside of party politics, mm. I think there needs to be a clear, unified voice. And we have heard from Fianna Gael and Fianna Fáil in the past in relation to Navin Hospital and a regional hospital and vari- this, various but, other d- d- commitments. D- 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 this is ridiculous. Not what you or Peter Tobin are doing. This whole thing is just ridiculous. I mean, why is this the third secret of Fatima? Why is this not uh, something uh, that is being discussed openly by policymakers? Uh, is the HSE a is the HSE a public service or is the HSE a, a private consortium that makes decision without having to be accountable to the people that it serves? Well, this is this is textbook, Michael, and we can replicate this anywhere you want, whether it's Roscommon and whether it's Mallow, whether it's Ennis. Um, this is the approach that's taken. Um, and I, I presume the rep- report they pointed you towards in 2013 mm. was the yeah. small hospital framework. You know, that's uh, and, and likewise, when they were closing Roscommon and when they were closing Ennis, they pointed to a HICWA report mm. that was, again, unrelated to the realities in Roscommon or Ennis or Mallow or anywhere else. Well, this it does. Is, I, 
I mean, we've, we, we've, known, we've, known, we've known that from that report that since 2013, the plan is to close the emergency department and the ICU beds and to make it a, a level two hospital and so on. But they talked about an implementation plan that they're developing now. And that's what we asked to see. And they sent us a report going back eight years. We don't know what the plan is now or anything like uh, it. Absolutely. And, and, and the, the truth is, Ireland and our health service and the, uh, the the health service challenges we have and the health service opportunities are very different now than they were in 2013. For example, we've we've had Slauncha Care and the proposals in relation to Slauncha Care and new regional structures and what the role of, of Navin Hospital is going to be mm. in relation to that. Has that been spelled out? No, it hasn't been spelled out. Mm. I, I have to say I welcome the the prospect of a, a meeting of the Save Navin Hospital group later on in the week. I think it's really important. I think it's essential that there is a unified uh, political voice uh, um, representing the, the public in County Mead in support of the, the hospital. We've called for a, a public demonstration outside of the Dáil mm. uh, at 12 o'clock on Thursday. I would encourage people to be there. And I think it's really important. Time is of the essence in relation to this. Um, we want to hear from, from Fianna Fáil and Fianna Gael in relation mm. to it. And we want to hear from the, the Not one Fianna Fáil or Fianna Gael councillor contacted us either since Friday. Uh, Peter Tobin, is the HSE... Uh, is it within its remit to say to people, mind your own business? Because that's what the HSE is doing now. People are, are saying, are, are, are you closing the emergency department in the local hospital? And they're saying to people, mind your own business. That is what is happening in effect by not responding to media queries from the local radio station. Yep. Like, listen, it's, it's incredibly wrong for a public body uh, to try to keep private their plans for a public hospital. It's absolutely wrong. I think the reasons why they won't show their hand is because they know by letting people know it would build significant resistance in County Meath. Um, remember that we have taken, as, as a hospital campaign, tens of thousands of people onto the streets of Meath on four separate occasions. I think if they, they know if they show their hands you know, right now, they'll have to make a logical and clear argument um, for, for closing the A&E. And there isn't a logical and clear argument. Well, there, there, there may be, but it's up to them to make it. Well, the only argument that they can make is that they feel that it isn't safe. And the only argument I would say that responds to that is make it safe by providing mm. the necessary resources, well, human resources. We know from the statement on Friday they're going to tell us that they're enhancing the services in the hospital. There'll be more services in the hospital. It'll be safer and it'll be more efficient. But, but that's, as you mentioned on the last day, that is corporate speak, mm. for, meaning the opposite. And it, it reminds me of, a, of an episode of Yes, Prime Minister, where a person is, is saying one thing but sounding like they're saying the, act, the, the exact opposite. You know, closing the, the A&E in Navan uh, in Meath with a population of 200,000 people that's well on its way to a quarter of a million people uh, would be a disaster for this county, mm. uh, both in terms of health care and in terms of development of, the, of this county. And um, so, you know, we're saying that there's absolutely no way that the Save Navin Hospital campaign would allow that to happen. And I would encourage all the political parties to come to the meeting, uh, mm. hopefully on Thursday night, and to work with the, the campaign so we have a unified approach and unified uh, activities in relation to uh, making sure that we stop this happening. Well, it is going to happen uh, unless you're successful in stopping it from happening. Otherwise, the ministers wouldn't have gone to ground. Otherwise, the HSE would have come back and said it's not happening. I will say it's important for the citizens of Meath to call out the elected representatives. And I I would say, you know, that the councillors uh, and the TDs and yep. the senators of Fianna Fáil and Fine Gael mm. need to be spoken to. The phone needs to be picked up 
uh, today and people need to have conversations in large numbers with those elected representatives to tell them that now is their time to, mm. to you know, fulfill their responsibility to County Meath. There's no point in going to ground, there's no point in keeping their head down. Mm. They need to stand up for the, the people of Meath in, the, in this time of... Not meeting. one councillor has contacted... Well, from the Navin area, we invited, we sent a, a, an invitation to the councillors in Navin, but not one councillor in Meath has contacted us since we started talking about this. Well, it, it, it is a, a, a situation that I know that if we contact the councillors en masse as citizens, those same councillors, when they get it in the ear... They will feed mm. it up the food chain to the TDs and the senators that are in the county. And I know for a fact that will push massive pressure uh, on um, the government. Mm. And also we'll be inviting all 40 councillors in County Meath to this meeting uh, this week as well. So, and, and they need to be able to come, stand up and be counted uh, in relation to mm. people of Meath. Otherwise... What is the point of them being public representatives in the first place? All right. Is it a, a tactic uh, that's been adopted, do you think, Darren O'Rourke? Uh, is the hope that this can be ignored away? That uh, if people don't respond, if people don't say anything, then, you know, uh, it, it won't be reported on and people won't be worried about it because nobody's talking about it? Uh, absolutely. You know, there, there haven't been public statements in relation to this. There's been no notification in relation to it. This is, you know, we're aware of it because it's come literally from the from the, the workers uh, and from the staff within the hospital service. And I have to say, uh, Michael, some of the, the concern that reaches me is from, from workers, not in Navin Hospital, but in Drogheda Hospital. When there's, when, when there's uh, because I work there, when there's diversions, when, when um, people are diverted from, from Navin to Drogheda, Drogheda isn't able to cope with the pressure. Um, so so I think it's a deliberate strategy on behalf of the HSE, and, and it requires absolutely a unified uh, political response here from all uh, political persuasions in the county uh, at, at every level, Oireachtas and, and local government. I think there's opportunity to secure a debate. I think we should protest on Thursday and we should organise around the Save Navin Hospital campaign. It should be an opportunity, I, I believe, for every elected representative to be a member of, 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 of that campaign and to push and to deliver and to win the same way that we won before in, in securing services at Navin. Yeah, I, I I just can't get over the position that the HSE has uh, adopted. Uh, I, I think it's contemptuous uh, in uh, relation to the people who are listening to us uh, this morning who are wondering what's going on. Why uh, are they talking about something if they don't know what they're talking about? Uh, I can imagine people listening to the radio saying that. Uh, I think it's insulting to the people of County Meath uh, to say uh, we've nothing to say, we've nothing to add to what we said. Uh, when we directed you to a report that was published eight years ago, uh, I but 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 part of it, Michael, is that they they cannot they they know there are so many holes in their argument in terms of like like Patter said it there, and I absolutely agree one hundred percent. They'll point towards safety. They'll point towards the European Working Time Directive. All of those challenges are surmountable if well, they want. Well, that would to be one it. thing if they did. <laughs> They're not pointing to anything. <laughs> I mean, they're, they're not saying it's happening or it's not happening. Uh, I mean, we're talking about grown-ups listening to us now who just want to know where they stand. Uh, and then you can have those arguments. Uh, but you need somebody to say, yes, this is what's happening or this is not happening. 
Yeah, absolutely. I, I agree entirely, Michael. And that is a contemptuous. You've, you've, you've put it well there. It's treating the people of the county, um, the taxpayers of the county, the citizens and residents of the county with contempt. Um, and, uh, you know, it's 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 absolutely no way to, to, to run uh, public services and it's no way to run government. And ultimately, the people who are accountable here are the public representatives. So we do need to hear mm. from our local Fianna Fáil and Fianna Gael representatives and no better place than on the floor of the Dáil tomorrow. Okay, and if the councillors listening to us in County Meath uh, wish to make their views known, particularly the councillors uh, who are members of the Fianna Fáil or the Fine Gael parties, uh, if they wish to make their views known to us, they're very welcome to contact us and we'd be very welcome to hear what they have to say on the radio this morning. Uh, we'll be back to you, I'm sure, in the coming days uh, but we leave it there for the moment and thank you both for joining us once again on the programme this morning. Uh, that's uh, two local TDs in Meath, Darren O'Rourke, who's a Sinn Féin TD for Meath East and Patrick Tobin, ain't to TD for Meath West. Michael Reed on LMFM. Now, a lot of focus uh, over the course of the next couple of weeks in terms of what the government is going to announce for budget 2022. Yes, in the budget we are looking at things uh, like an increase in the fuel allowance and increases in um, pensions and social welfare so that people can keep up with uh, the rise in the cost of living. It's not an increase, it's really just indexation. And the same thing applies for working people too. But there should be increases in the state pension and indeed the fuel allowance, according to the Thonish. Leo Radker speaking in the Dáil there last week. Let's speak to Tricia Keelty, who's head of social justice with the Society of St. Vincent de Paul. Good morning, Tricia. And thank you indeed for joining us. The Thonish is correct. If the fuel allowance in particular is increased, it won't see more money in people's pockets because the cost of energy is going to increase very significantly, it seems. Uh, an increase of possibly as much as €400 Euro for electricity and heating next year. Yes, that's right, um, Michael, and thanks for having me on. So we're very, very concerned about the impact of price increases on households who are already struggling, many who maybe have been out of work during the pandemic and already have higher levels of debt. So as you said, there are many suppliers have already increased their prices. For example, there's been 30 price hikes announced since the start of the year, some raising them four times. Um, and that's added, as you say, 400 to 500 euro extra to a bill. Um, and this is not unique to Ireland. This is a, an issue across Europe due to rising wholesale prices. But I suppose from our point of view, with substantial price increases, in addition to increases in environmental levies like carbon tax and network charges, the ability of low-income households to meet their energy needs is under growing pressure. And unfortunately, I think we're facing into a very difficult winter unless there's a very decisive and strong intervention in the budget um, in, on the 12th of October. What, what, what's required, do you think? So from our point of view, um, we, we think the fuel allowance is a really, really important form of support. But at the moment, it's already inadequate in meeting energy needs for those in energy poverty. So we'd like to see it extended from its current... Uh, period from 28 weeks to 32 weeks. So that would give people extra security over over the winter months. We also want to see the eligibility looked at because it doesn't reach all households experiencing energy poverty. So we'd like to see it extended to those in receipt of the working family payment. Mm. And also we'd like to see a discretionary fund established. This is something that we've been calling for since the start of the pandemic because people have had higher bills already during Mm. lockdowns from being home more. There's a lot of people 
with energy debt and they're going to need help as well. Really? Because the Tanisha said the first time he heard a suggestion of uh, that sort was last week in uh, the Dáil when Sinn Féin spokesperson on social protection, Claire Curran, uh, asked that it would be considered. Yeah, so uh, this is something that we've we've been calling for mm. since January. But he said it was um, a good idea and it may actually be part of uh, the announcements uh, that are, are made in the budget. Yeah, we're really pleased to see that they are considering this because we think it could be a real huge help for people who don't qualify for fuel allowance but are struggling. Mm. And I suppose what we, we say, you know, to people, if you are struggling to pay your bill, it's really, really important to get in touch with your supplier because you may be able to put in place a payment plan or you may be able to install a prepay meter which can help with managing those uh, those big bills. And you need to be out of work for 15 months after losing your job before you qualify for the fuel allowance, is it? Yeah, so that's another recommendation um, that we put forward in our pre-budget submission, that that wait period would be removed so that people, when they become unemployed, can qualify for the fuel allowance. Mm. Because we know, you know, from our from our uh, work in communities and working with families and individuals who are experiencing energy poverty, you know, even in normal times, families dread winter time because they find it impossible to heat their homes. Mm. We spend about four to five million every year supporting people in energy poverty and our volunteers would regularly meet families and individuals who are maybe living in one room during the winter months because it's 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 cutting down on bills that way or they're sitting in the cold and the mm. dark because they've nothing left at the end of the week. To top it up their it might be a, a fluke uh, that the allowance is kicking in from today for those who do qualify for it uh, because uh, I think the weather is turned uh, has finally turned after the freaky weather we've been having up to now. It was like a summer uh, over the weekend, uh, but uh, it's definitely a change in the weather and we're going into the winter season. Uh, you said, I think it's difficult to say though, because I mean, you could have the heat on in June or July for that matter, but you said it should be extended from 28 to 32 weeks. Uh, what time period uh, would you be suggesting from, from around now in uh, up to later in the year? Uh, because it runs up to April, is it? Yeah, so we find probably extending it out the, uh, beyond April. So we know during um, COVID, what they did during the initial lockdown, they did ex- actually extend it by four weeks as a as a um, emergency measure because uh, people were it was still quite cold uh, during that time and people were still using the heating and everybody was at home. Mm. So we would see that that would be a very good way of just giving people that extra bit of security um, during during the year. Um, and we know obviously there's a big increase in electricity prices mm. as well. So it's not just heating. So we need to have some mm-hmm. support there for people so they can keep the lights on as well. And we're going to see the increases then that are applied to the fossil fuels because of the green proofing of the budget announcements. Uh, there's going to be increases on top of increases. So it'll be difficult to help people in a way that will actually really offset the increase in the cost of energy. Yeah, so it's really, really important that we also see an increase in the core social welfare rates as well, so that people um, can help with these rising energy costs. Three to five euro is what is being muted. Yeah, so uh, from our point of view, that's not going to be enough. Um, we're, we're going to need, um, we've recommended a, an increase on core social welfare rates of, of up to €10 euro, um, for adults and um, €5 euro for, for children as well. And that's really going to be important in not only addressing the rising energy costs, but helping people who are already at, on an income that is set below the poverty line and well below what is required to meet a minimum standard of living. So it is going to be a very challenging budget, but I think it's really, really important that it focuses on those who've been struggling 
uh, prior to COVID and during the COVID-19 pandemic because we know it's hit those on the lowest incomes hardest. Mm. So we really need to see a budget that's properly poverty-proofed to ensure that people aren't struggling. And I suppose in the longer term when you're talking about energy poverty, it's also really important that there's extra funding there for um, energy efficiency measures. We know that people are more likely, if they're on a low income, to be living in poorly insulated homes. So we need to see extra funding for the retrofit of social housing. And we'd also like to see moves towards introducing minimum energy efficiency standard into the private rented sector as well. Mm. But we're talking about massive increases in the cost of energy. It's not just a, a concern in terms of people being able to heat their homes because there's so many domino effects, aren't there? Uh, I mean, if uh, we're looking at uh, householders seeing increases of four or five hundred euro uh, for electricity and heating, uh, that applies across the board and increases depending on the amount of, of energy you use. So if you go down to your local supermarket and they're paying an awful lot more for their electricity because of the increase in the cost of electricity, they're going to have to make that up somewhere and you're going to see an increase in the price of peas and everything else for that matter. Yeah, and that, it, it does have a huge knock-on impact. But as well, from our point of view, even a slight change in a household expenditure or income can knock a family into crisis. So, for example, if people are struggling to pay their utility bill, they may start struggling to pay their rent and then they may be put at risk of homelessness as well. So it can really have wide-ranging impacts. Um, on people and, and that's a real concern for us so you know the budget is going to have to make uh, uh, very significant inroads to protect people um, in the coming year. Alright Trisha thanks for talking to us as always uh, that's uh, Trisha Keelty who's Head of Social Justice with uh, the Society of St Vincent de Paul Michael Reed on LMFM. Now let's uh, hear some statements from some statesmen. May I send my best wishes to all those taking part in this year's International Week for Deaf People. This is uh, the President of Ireland, Michael D. Higgins, giving his support this week to to the International Week for Deaf People. The theme that has been chosen for this year's event is celebrating thriving deaf communities, reminding us of the importance of the benefits of working together in solidarity so as to ensure that the needs of all citizens are recognised and that the most fundamental right, the right to a voice in your community, is respected. We know that in Ireland an estimated 5,000 people are recorded as deaf We also know, however, that the deaf community is far bigger than that, comprising those who are deaf, those who are hard of hearing, their families, hearing people who work with the deaf and friends of the deaf. It makes up, therefore, a broad and generous community that working together provides a great opportunity for the creation of a more inclusive Ireland. The first International Week for Deaf People was marked in Rome 63 years ago. Life for the deaf has seen many improvements since 1958. Despite the many improvements we have witnessed, there remains, however, much work to be done if we are to create a fully equal and inclusive landscape for citizens who are deaf or hard of hearing. Many obstacles still remain between deaf citizens and their right to fully access public and private services and information, for example. Many hurdles are still placed between deaf citizens and access to educational and employment opportunities. 
Many organizations and individuals continue to thoughtlessly stigmatize and discriminate against deaf citizens. In short, many deaf citizens continue to experience exclusion and isolation in their daily lives, and thus a denial of a full voice in the societies and economies to which they have so much to contribute. I'm deeply grateful to our deaf community for all they have done to improve the landscape here in Ireland for citizens who are deaf or hard of hearing. Your achievements have been many, and I know you will continue to work with vision and determination, building on those achievements and helping to create a nation truly founded on the principle of a citizenship that is defined by participation and the right of all citizens to be represented and to have their voice heard. President Higgins, statesman number one out of three today. Number two, Taoiseach Michal Martin, his address uh, to the United Nations General Assembly on Friday, the UNGA. Now, the GA will listen to the Chancellor of Ireland, His Excellency Miguel Martin. Okay, some pronunciation problems, uh, but uh, this is how the Taoiseach was introduced to the UN. It is my great pleasure to introduce Ireland Prime Minister Miguel Martin. And he will make a statement at the GA. Distinguished heads of state and government, esteemed heads of delegations, Mr. Secretary-General, Deputy Secretary-General, friends. This week, in this hall, a series of alarms have sounded. They have sounded for conflict. They have sounded for COVID. They have sounded for climate. We have heard the alarms. Now we must respond. I believe that this is what the General Assembly or Assembly of Nations was created to do, or purpose, or obligation. The United Nations is a symbol of hope for billions of people around the world. The UN flag, a beacon of peace across the globe. The blue helmets, guardians to the most vulnerable. UN convoys, a lifeline to millions. The obligation we assume in this hall is to transform that hope in the face of our common challenges, into a better future for all our peoples. The Taoiseach Michal Martin telling the United Nations that we must now respond uh, to the alarm bells over conflict, COVID and climate. And so to statesman number three. And when Kermit the Frog, Kermit the Frog sang, it's not easy being green. You remember that one? I want you to know that he was wrong. He was wrong. It is easy. It's not only easy, it's lucrative and it's right to be green. He was also unnecessarily rude to Miss Piggy, I thought, uh, Kermit the Frog. But it is easy uh, to be green. We have the technology, as we used to say when I was a, when I was a kid. We can do it. We have so, so in 40 days' time, we have the choice 
before us. Boris Johnson, the British Prime Minister who, before becoming Prime Minister, may have been very funny and have I got news for you, but at the United Nations General Assembly, during his speech, as you heard there, he was referring to Kermit the Frog, uh, gave an awful lot of people living in France reason to be upset with the British Prime Minister, and I think uh, it seems uh, as though they're upset, generally speaking, with the people of Britain as a result. Michael Reed on LMFM. Now to a fierce uh, battle that took place in the Congo in 1961 that saw 155 Irish peacekeepers from A Company holding out for five days against 3,000 heavily armed mercenaries and local militias. After that siege, 34 men were recommended for Distinguished Service Medals, but none of them were ever awarded. Since then, there's been an independent report into what's called the Siege of Jadotville, and that recommended against awarding medals to all of those 34 men or the eight who are still living. Instead, it's recommending that just one survivor receive a medal. Let's uh, talk to Independent Senator Jared Crockwell, who's gone to the High Court about this. A very good morning to you, Senator Crockwell, and thank you indeed for joining us on the programme this morning. That really was a fierce battle by all accounts. And uh, in a, a lot of uh, the individual circumstances. We're talking about men who didn't have uh, that type of experience and indeed suffered greatly as a a result of the experience. Uh, Good morning, Michael, and uh, thank you for having me on this morning. Good morning to your listeners. Yes, Michael, no battle in the history of the Irish Defence Forces uh, has ever matched what happened in Jadaville. Jadaville was a unique situation where, in some cases, some very young boys, as young as 16, who had uh, joined the Defence Forces, uh, found themselves in the Congo. Most who were in the Congo didn't even know where it was before they left. And to find themselves in a situation where they endured a five-day siege and then several weeks as prisoners of war, um, it's just unbelievable. Now, the the medal that you spoke of that the Independent Review Group have uh, recommended was a medal for Commandant Pat Quinlan, the one person from Jadaville who had never been recommended for a medal. But Commandant Quinlan and his fellow officers had recommended 33 people between them. Uh, so we find it extremely distressing that 60 years on, nothing has been done for these men. Mm. Uh, eight of them still living, is it? Yeah, uh, seven now, actually. Uh, seven, Michael, right. We lost one recently. OK, OK. And, and, and how do they feel about all of this? It ranges from absolute outright anger and resentment and bitterness over the way they've been treated to. Um, one fellow said to me last week in Mullingar, he said, at this stage, if they gave it to me, he said, I would want to get it purely so as they could hand it back to them. Oh, OK. And that is really sad. Mm. Why is that the case? Do you know, nobody that I know of in military circles can understand why uh, the hierarchy, this is a solely military issue, it is not a political issue, mm. issue or a departmental issue. Nobody can understand why when people get to the rank of chief of staff, who are the people that make the recommendation that a medal be awarded, they simply refuse to do that. 
And when Simon Coveney opened the door on Jettable and asked the Chief of Staff to reconsider the entire event, the Chief of Staff opted for an independent review group. And the group um, depends largely in the report on Defence Force regulations. And we actually don't believe the regulations have any basis whatsoever. Mm. And that's why we've come to the High Court. Okay, and what is your involvement in this? I understand uh, you signed an affidavit, as did uh, Pat Quinlan, uh, but why the interest? What was your involvement in the siege of Jadaville? It's twofold, really, Michael. One is I served in Mount Cape Cahillon in Galway, uh, the 1st Infantry Battalion, and I served beside soldiers who served in Jadaville. And over the five years I was there as a sergeant, uh, not one of those men ever mentioned Jadaville to me. Um, The torment that those men went through uh, after they came home from Jadaville meant they they all went silent on it. That was the first thing. And the second thing is a a group of veterans met me here in 2015 and asked me if I would raise the matter in the houses of the Oireachtas and I did that no less than 20 times Mm. before the minister finally succumbed and agreed to uh, open uh, uh, to ask the chief of staff to reopen the case. Okay, this is 60 years on. Uh, It's hard to believe uh, that uh, there's uh, so much uh, between the two sides and that it is so contentious uh, because I take it we're talking about people uh, who are getting on in their years uh, and many of them have already passed uh, at uh, this stage. What support was there for them over the course of the 60 years? That's another thing that came out in the report. There is no support. Even today, Michael, for soldiers returning from places like Chad, Bosnia, um, um, uh, the the, uh, Golan Heights from uh, Lebanon, uh, many come back suffering from... the the uh, PTSD, and uh, there are no post traumatic stress. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, there are no supports in place. We we have looked after our military really badly, Michael, and uh, we hope to change that in the coming months and years. Okay, uh, what's the point of uh, the injunction? What's the point uh, in fighting this if uh, the men are going to uh, ultimately win the case, receive the medals, and give them back? Um, if, if that's what they choose to do, uh, then fine. The important thing here is, Michael, every military in the world, the Australians recently awarded a Victoria Cross to a man 100 years after he, he, he carried out the deed that uh, uh, led to the award of the Victoria Cross. The American Congressional Medal of Honor. Uh, again, if you have a Congressional Medal of Honor in the United States, you can do so many things from travel free through the United States, enter public buildings, you name it. What we're really talking about here, Michael, is recognition of valour, recognition of extreme bravery, recognition of those who serve. The Gardaí have recently gone through a period of restorative justice, and you can see that in the last couple of weeks there have been several Scott medals. Interesting one last night, a Scott medal was introduced, was um, uh, awarded to uh, uh, Sheehan. Standing beside him and killed in the same incident was Private Kelly. Mm. Scott Middle goes to the girl and nothing to the private. Mm. Okay, and uh, I mean, most of us uh, wouldn't remember this because uh, it's so long ago. We're going back 60 years. uh, And even those uh, who are of an age uh, to have 
being aware of it at the time, I'm sure their memories are fading at this stage, but it really was a, a fierce battle. And many of the men uh, who we're talking about were held as prisoners of war. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it's what we call moral injury nowadays. That's the term that's used for it. I, I mean, I've spoken to the children of uh, who are now adults of some of the soldiers who returned from Jedeville and uh, hearing stories of fathers waking up in the middle of the night screaming, uh, hearing stories of people who never really adjusted again to uh, life when they came back home. It's really a desperate, desperate story. And uh, while the film glamorises it to some degree, the Netflix film The Siege of Jedeville, the the stories that come back are pretty horrific. Well, war is never pretty, uh, but this was horrific by all uh, accounts. uh, And a thousand people, or more than that, uh, lost their lives uh, in this battle. A thousand and fifty, three hundred on one side and seven hundred and fifty on the other. Yeah, in our particular case, we the Jadaval situation, there were 156 men um, in place uh, in Jadaval. Uh, two of them were wounded, and that was all that uh, he brought home. Quinlan brought home the entire company that he went to Jadaval with, and that was a phenomenal uh, success. But in Irish circles, it was seen as a failure. Uh, the the uh, cry was the the. Um, ran away. They, uh, it was an act of cowardice to surrender, but he saved 156 lives. Some of those soldiers' children were handled white feathers. Uh, you know, I mean, when you think back, it is a long time ago, Michael, but um, the, 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 the pain and suffering continues. They were handled white feathers by whom? The, the children of other soldiers. Oh, right. And signifying a a surrender. Mm. Yep, Mm. yeah. Mm. Uh, There was a famous film out around about that time, the the white feathers, Mm. the four white feathers that were handed to a guy who was a conscientious objector in the British Army at the time. Mm. And I think that's where the white feathers came from. But it it, it was really strange. One of the guys I served with, I was a sergeant, uh, and that was a man called Charlie Cooley in Galway. Charlie was recommended for a DSM. Uh, if you met the guy, you would say to yourself, I couldn't possibly believe Charlie had done what he did. Mm. And now every time I meet him, Charlie shouts at me, Crockwell, where's my where's my medal? <laughs> okay. And, uh, you know, I mean, uh, I, I'm bound to do, morally bound to do everything I can to get these uh, medals sorted out. Okay, a DSM, a Distinguished Service Medal, and it'll be the High Court that decides now, is it? The High Court will decide if the Defence Force regulations have any standing in law. And if they don't, (coughs) then we have to go back and solve that problem first. Okay. All right. Uh, It's a long time ago uh, and uh, not very familiar to me uh, and probably not to a a lot of people, I think, because of the passage of time. Uh, Interesting story. in our very recent history, it has to be said, uh, on the other hand, uh, and involving uh, seven people uh, who have survived all of that at this stage. Thank you for telling us uh, about it. And undoubtedly, we'll come back to you uh, as the story progresses, as it will from here now because of the injunction. Thank, thank you, you very much, Michael. Thank, thank you, you indeed. Thank you,
in Independent Senator Jared Crockwell there. Uh, let me bring you some of uh, the comments uh, coming uh, to us uh, this morning. Uh, somebody in touch with us wondering how much uh, the fuel allowance is. It's just under... Uh, 800 euro I think over the course of the 28 weeks. Uh, Somebody else then in touch because I think some people if not all of us are concerned about the increases uh, in energy prices and indeed the likes of diesel after the budget. Uh, It's Ellen who's texting saying her son travels to Dublin. He leaves at half four every morning. It costs him 80 euro for diesel and that doesn't include the cost of having to park when he gets there or the tolls for that matter and it's not worth working as things stand. Uh, Another text uh, that uh, comes to us uh, from uh, Deirdre who says, total disaster if uh, they close the hospital in Navan. Brendan texting uh, saying, the way to sort out the fuel increases is offered the pensioners and those on disability no increase in weekly social welfare payments. Ensure the cost of food and fuel is high, then all of uh, these sectors will uh, die of hypothermia or starvation. Some TDs uh, will never know what senior poverty is like when they're driving around in their big mercs uh, with all their perks and their millions in the banks. Meanwhile, they could be tapping on tents looking for votes as senior citizens uh, once the backbone of uh, this country, the people who voted uh, for the political parties are reduced to sleeping rough because they can't afford the property tax. Thank you indeed, Brendan. I'm not sure that we have ever received such a cynical text of the programme ever. My God, thank you indeed. Uh, another texter saying that the, def- the defence forces never get any recognition for the work they do. What a shame. Thank you indeed for sharing your thoughts with us today. Michael Reed on LMFM. When is a tax cut not a tax cut? Well, it's not a tax cut, apparently, if it means that you're paying less tax, but you're earning more money. We do need pay increases, and there are pay increases in most parts of the economy in the coming year. In the public service, there will be an increase in the minimum wage. Um, But it's also why we need tax indexation. And they're not tax cuts, uh, as Sinn Féin likes to describe them. It's tax indexation. It's just making sure that if people get that pay increase, get that increment, that they're able to keep it. So if somebody earns €40,000, let's say, roughly an average income, they get a pay increase of 2%, that's €800. At the moment, they would lose half of that in tax. So they'd only get €400. That's not enough to keep up with the rise in the cost of living. But with indexation, they'll keep most of that €800. They'll get 650 700 That's the whole point of indexation. It's not a tax cut. It's just making sure that Middle Ireland um, hold on to whatever small pay increase or increment they get. In the same way as we increase pensions or we increase welfare, to take account of the rise in the cost of living, we should do the same when it comes to income tax. And that's what indexation is. It's not a tax cut. It's just making sure that Middle Ireland isn't left out. Uh, and I, I know that's why you'll be supporting that measure in, in, in the budget, I'm sure. I'm sure that's the case, uh, that TDs will support uh, that measure as uh, the Tanisha outlined it uh, to the Dáil last week. It's very simple. If the government cuts taxes for high earners, it's not a tax cut if the high earner has received a pay increase. Uh, let's uh, talk to Father Sean Healy, the Director of Social Justice Ireland. A very good morning to you, and thank you indeed uh, for joining us. How are you doing? I'm good. You got that, yeah? I'm enjoying this, absolutely. <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> the 
I mean, to deal with it is very straightforward, you know. I mean, uh, the government's approach, uh, I think there, there, there's two things missing out of what the Thought Initiative was saying. One is that while he's making this claim for, for people with pay increases, he has, he, and the fact that these things should be indexed and so on, he totally failed to increase uh, welfare, social welfare rates uh, for the poorest in society by a cent in either of the last two budgets. Now, he was at the mm. two in the second last budget, and he was astonished in the last budget. Oh, no, but he's doing that this time around. Well, I mean, you're here to talk to us about what we're expecting from the leaks. What's the numbers he's talking about, though? Three, three, about three to five euro. By, he's talking about increasing welfare by three euro a week, yeah. or, or possibly five. That's a joke. Mm. I mean, and it's a sick joke. I, mean, I don't mean it's funny. Like, it's not funny at all. The reality is that the poorest in society have had no increase whatsoever mm. in their core welfare rates in the last two years. Um, the, there are, uh, and, and they, they should obviously get a minimum increase of at least a ten, tenor this year uh, to, to take them some way towards reaching, going back to the benchmark that they were at back in 2007. For heaven's sake, like they, they, they they've been, they, they're what the poorest are receiving has been allowed to recede in that time. But the bottom line in this, like facing the budget, is there are choices, difficult choices mm. to be made, and uh, you have a situation where the government has its housing for all. Uh, strategy that is just published. It has a climate action plan coming down the pike, uh, and it should be published maybe uh, before Budget Day. And then the, the revised National Development Plan, which uh, has been highlighted several mm. times, and that's scheduled for publication before the budget as well. So well, these are three very big ticket items, and the government doesn't have endless money, so it has to make choices, des- mm. decisions, and so on. And one decision impacts a- another. Of course. Uh, uh, let's go back to that 800 euro increase that somebody on 40,000 might be getting next year. Uh, as things stand, the Tonsha says half of that would be gone in tax. Uh, so they'd only be left with 400. Uh, that would mean 400 would uh, be paid in tax. That would be 400 extra for the government. Would that cover uh, that type of increase uh, that you're looking for in social welfare? Because the Tonsha is saying, well, maybe we should split it and give uh, 250 of that 400 to the workers so that they don't have to pay it all in tax. They'd be getting 400 extra. He's saying give them 650 extra and at the same time introduce welfare or increase welfare by three euro. Well, this is a classic kind of uh, dilemma that's being put out there as a dilemma. It's not a dilemma at all, but let me just show you. Year in, year out, uh, in, uh, in, in for several years now, uh, we have seen governments trying to present uh, a, a dilemma uh, before the budget, which basically is pitching uh, Ireland's poorest, the people on social welfare, against people on in, with a job who get a pay increase. Now, the interesting thing, if you just stay with that example that he had there, mm. Um, that the person with the job would be four, even if things didn't change, yeah. would be four hundred euro a year better off. Mm. The person on welfare is not better off at all. Mm. If they don't, unless they get an increase in the budget. So the focus, to put the focus on saying it's this or this is mm. completely wrong. I think what we need to do is to recognize that we should be, build, uh, you know, the budget should be about building a future that's prosperous and that's sustainable and that's fair. And it should be socially progressive. It shouldn't be one that's moving the resources from poorer people to better off people. Um, and it, it should promote well-being. And, I mean, the government's program for government uh, makes some of these references, you know. And uh, I think critically important, it should build a future where there's nobody left mm. behind. Now, to achieve that, what do you need to do? 
I think the first thing that you need to do is to sort of put major investment to support Ireland's recovery. And I think that's the critical issue there is to try to ensure that we have as few people as possible unemployed mm. next year and the following year, that whatever we're okay. doing in the economy... But just, just to really stop you for a second, because, yep. you know, it, 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 maybe the Tanisha has a point uh, and maybe people are saying, you know, I'm after getting €800 Euro extra a year. Why am I only getting 400 and I'm giving 400 to the government? Uh, but that, again, is a question of choice. You could decide to give them an extra 250 or tax them 250 less mm-hmm. uh, by taking that off somebody who's on 150,000. Or even by taking it off somebody who is a, a, a multinational or transnational corporation who's paying 2% of their profits and keeping 98% of it. And that's perfectly legal in Ireland, despite all the talk about 12.5% mm-hmm. as a... As a, as a, a uh, sort of a, a minimum ta- uh, the actual corporate tax rate so what we're proposing there for example would be that there should be a minimum effective corporate tax rate that uh, the cor- corporate sector would have to pay a minimum percentage of its profits in tax now uh, th- this is what uh, the um, OECD process uh, that 130-something countries are signed on to. They're all signed on now to, uh, to, to, to have a situation where corporations must pay at least 15% of their profits. Now, uh, go back to your worker and his the 800 euro mm-hmm. increase. Like a worker, if, if the worker was told that they would only have to pay 15% of that and keep 85% of it, they'd be very, very happy. But the bottom line in, in, in the tax, in the mm. corporation tax situation is that the government isn't even prepared to sign off on the minimum rate of 15%. It wants to, mm. uh, to sort of put that as the ceiling that it can only be 15% and can't go beyond that. Mm. Now, I think with all, like fairness in taxation is critically important, but it's, we have to look at the whole tax uh, base and not just at the, 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 the sort of uh, person who's on low income, the person mm. who's on middle income, and then the, 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 the millionaire, if you like, who's making a lot of money. No, the, the actual, as well as the, as well as the corporate sector. To, to answer your question straight up, yes, it would be fairer to, ta- to, to ensure that the money was paid by the really high earners and mm. not by middle income well, earners. That, that's, that's an opinion, you see, and I, I suppose... It and depa- it's a fair it, opinion, because yeah, it's true, Michael, well, like, that is mm. the situation... It oh, I know, but fair. as to whether it would be fairer or, or not is uh, subjective. Uh, and Leo Radker obviously thinks uh, it's better not to increase welfare uh, than uh, to cut, or than, I'm confused now, because he, he's saying that he's not going to cut the taxes. So if he was right. to keep taxes as they are, uh, that would result uh, in an increase or the money would be available uh, for social welfare. But if if he was to increase taxes on earnings of, let's say, 100,000 or 150,000, would he call them tax increases? Or would you say that's just indexing uh, the well, social welfare he, model? Uh, well, I mean, indexing um, is part of the tax system. Uh, they they use a lot of different, mm. uh, like they, they use a lot of different terminology to hide the reality. Like the, the, the bottom line there, if, they're, if they don't index the tax uh, rates, uh, or not the rates, the, the actual bans, mm. uh, then in, in effect, people will pay a bit more tax when they get a pay increase. Not, not if their situation remains exactly as it is, but if they get a pay increase, they will pay uh, a bit more on that than mm. they would otherwise do. Now, that's... Um, 
that's one part of part of the equation, if you like. But uh, what I'm saying, I suppose, is that there's a there's a part on each side of that. On one side, there's a, people who are depending on welfare, um, who are living in poverty, uh, who have got no increase whatsoever in their, their core rates uh, for the last two years, and it would be an outrage that this year they would get like five euro in the, of, a, of an increase and be told that they should be happy with that, mm. when in fact they've fallen so far behind. They need they need a minimum of ten euro. On the other side, uh, you have the corporate sector, uh, and there's peop- there's organisations, corporate corporations paying uh, very low levels of taxation. And the, I'm not, you need don't have to depend on me. These, this is research done by the mm. revenue commissioners, and it's all very legal. Shows what's legally done, and there are uh, corporations in the top hundred in Ireland. Uh, there's about seven or eight of them who pay little or no tax, very low tax take uh, come on all of their profits. So you have a situation where uh, somebody who, who, who is making hundreds of millions in profits gets to pay only a very low level of taxation mm. percentage-wise on that. And then we're being told that, oh, well, they are paying a lot of, the, a lot of the tax that we get is coming from there. Yes, because they have huge profits. Mm. Uh, but the actual percentage profit there is very small. Now, the choices the government has to face is that we Ireland does not have the infrastructure. It doesn't have the social housing, the public transport. It doesn't have the broadband networks uh, that are required of a modern society, a modern economy. Mm. We don't have the equivalent that they have across Europe. And we need major investment to support Ireland's recovery. And that 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 uh, needs to that money has to come from somewhere. And I think it's important that we try to pay our way. We don't try to balance the bu- budget this year. I don't think we should. Mm. It definitely shouldn't because we are still dealing with the fallout from COVID. But we should try to ensure that having got this far and done a fairly good job now, I must, I must mm. say, mm. To having got this far, we should be trying to make sure that we don't damage the economy in any way. We need to protect communities to keep unemployment low and, and, and to sort of ensure critical infrastructure deficits are addressed, particularly in the housing area. And then to, ha- to tackle climate change that we, I haven't mentioned mm. at all, except for the, for the, for the climate action. Well, that's, that's interesting that you're mentioning it now because uh, we're going to see huge increases in the cost of energy and then following on from the budget we're going to see uh, a lot of taxes on fossil fuels, the cost of oil and coal and briquettes and all are going to go through the roof because of uh, the green taxes that are going on on them Uh, and uh, I I read in the papers last week that a a government source said that the big winners in the budget are going to be the elderly because they're going to get an increase three to five euro uh, in their pension and an increase in the fuel allowance. Um, let's do the climate thing first for a minute. I, I think myself that the government should invest about the, the, what we have suggested in Social Justice Ireland is about 240 million on on the climate side. Two, uh, like that would be 85 million for retrofitting of housing, um, putting 100 million into renewable energy putting 5 million into biodiversity, 10 million into the circular economy. There's some of the kinds of things we're talking about there because I think we do need to take action uh, on on, on climate given the situation we have today. On pensions and older people, um, we would put more than a billion euro into this because into older people because uh, we would prioritise the the establishment of a universal pension. Now, this this is not what government is doing with the pensions. Government is developing a private system that is going to be a real mini, mon, money spinner for the pensions industry, but isn't going to help in any great way with people's 
shortage of money in, from their pension when they get to pension age. What we're saying basically is there should be a universal pension paid to people at the, when they reach their pension age and that that should be paid uh, no matter what. It should be paid at the level of the con- current level of the contributory old age pension. Or, mm-hmm. uh, that, that, that's okay. And then we would also invest in social care and home packages like over 100 million we think should go in there because of the importance of social care and home care, trying to keep uh, like he- people aging well at home rather than having to go into uh, nursing homes and so on. And then I think there is a, a need for increased funding for nursing homes in our uh, budget choices, that document that we sent to government, we recommended uh, an increased funding for nursing homes of about 35 million mm. in, in budget 22. New, that would be new money uh, that, would, that, that should go in there it seems to us. Okay, we'll leave it there. Uh, we'll uh, be watching what the government is planning in the next couple of weeks. Uh, but thank you indeed for joining us. Absolutely. Uh, very interesting times, uh, given what is going to be undoubtedly a huge increase in inflation by the looks of it uh, over the course of the next year. Uh, thank you indeed, uh, Father Sean Healy, uh, Director of Social Justice Ireland. Michael Reed on LMFM. Now let's uh, go back uh, to the idea of a COVID bonus. Uh, the nurses, uh, as you know, want 10 days annual leave as a result of uh, the effort that they put in getting us through the pandemic. But what about everybody else? Uh, the supermarket workers, the Gardaí, they're looking for a bonus too. Uh, what about the people working in the nursing homes or the cocooners uh, who really did put on the green jersey, staying at home, doing nothing at all and seeing nobody so that we wouldn't have a spread of the virus, let alone the bus drivers who kept us going through it all. Uh, And maybe we all deserve some sort of... recognition for the effort that we put into all of this, uh, maybe to celebrate COVID or is it to commemorate COVID as the case may be? You're you're, you're right that a lot of things have to be considered and while some countries have already paid a recognition bonus to staff, they've done it on a very narrow basis Uh, often they only limited it uh, to to healthcare workers for example and you and I agree that we need to do something more more broad than that so um, uh, that needs to be borne in mind as well Uh, I can't give you exact timelines Um, this doesn't have to be a a budget day decision um, but it might be uh, but this is something that is being led by Minister McGrath. Uh, I know he wants to engage with the, with the unions and with the Labour Employer Economic Forum, wants to talk to the party leaders about it uh, and wants to be able to come up with a proposal uh, that government can then endorse. And that's uh, the Tarnashtra Leo Radker once again speaking in the Dáil last week. Let's uh, talk to Neil Macdonald, CEO of ISME. Uh, something is going to be done for the frontline workers, uh, there's no doubt about that, but it also seems as though there's little doubt that there will be an additional bank holiday. Reports uh, that the arrangements are at an advanced stage as we speak. Yes, Michael, um, and you've done, a, you've done a very good summary there on, on the issues that, you know, how do you reward people uh, for for working through a pandemic and where do you draw the line at, at who did and who did not work um, or, or step up to the mark? So it's a very, very difficult and tricky issue. Um, we think it's unfortunate that the conversation around a bank holiday has been kind of conflated with the whole pandemic issue because on, on the one hand, um, Ireland is uh, behind the European average with at nine days, nine bank holidays uh, would compare with, you know, two days or so less than the European average of 10 to 11 days. Um, but probably of all the reasons to, to bring in another bank holiday or two, uh, a pandemic probably isn't the best one of them. And really, we should be thinking more about, you know, 
terms and conditions for workers in society in general rather than using this as some sort of um, ill-thought thank you mechanism mm. for people after a pandemic, if that makes sense, Michael. So, yeah, it does. You're not, you're not opposed to the idea of an extra bank holiday or two, perhaps, uh, to bring us into line with European norms, uh, but this is not the justification for it, is it? Well, if, if it has taken this for us to come around to this, well, so be it. You know, um, obviously there are uh, businesses for whom this is a bigger burden than others. And then there will also be businesses, for example, in hospitality and in retail who, who would be very strongly in favour of this. They would they would see this as improving their lot. So mm. then the, the views on, on an extra bank holiday are, are entirely sectoral. For a service business, of course, you don't just have the cost of the bank holiday for an employee. Mm. For those ones that have to work, you have premium pay. So mm. the Double pay, of isn't it? a yeah. bank holiday across the economy is very different depending on, on what sector you award that bank holiday within. It might work for hotels because they may be paying their staff double time, but they'll have more business, uh, which will offset that cost. But for other businesses who have to pay double time, who don't see an increase in business, uh, they're down on the deal. Yeah, precisely. So it's it's a horses for courses debate. Um, some businesses have to replace uh, a person of businesses that deliver their services twenty four seven, or where custom takes place at at the point of delivery with the client. Uh, it it does impose a cost. For some of them, it's worthwhile doing that, and for others, it isn't. So, um, but look. You know, as employers, we're empathetic to that debate mm. that Ireland is is, be, is behind European norms. But let's have a, a sensible discussion about it, not on the basis that, uh, you know, we've had a pandemic, therefore yeah. we should have what would be a recurrent public holiday. You know, we, we should do it for the right reasons. Yeah, well, there could end up being terrible arguments about a COVID bank holiday because if the idea was to commemorate those who got sick and lost their lives and work very hard uh, through all of that uh, with those people who passed away and in order to save others uh, from this deadly virus, uh, if we're all down the pub as if it's St. Patrick's Day celebrating the COVID, uh, could it upset people? Exactly, and that's precisely, uh, you, you put your finger on precisely the sort of issue we should be addressing rather than talking about something to mark COVID. So, for example, um, you know, there, there is no bank holiday between New Year's Day and um, Patrick's Day. And then within the summer, you go from uh, the June bank holiday to the August bank holiday. Uh, and similarly, then there's none at the back end of the year. There was a tradition. Uh, it has waned somewhat uh, in recent years where, where people used to uh, go up to Dublin, as the saying was, around the 8th of December uh, for, for a shopping day pre-Christmas. And, and these are all areas that have been um, talked about at one stage or another as candidates uh, for um, mm. for a bank holiday. That's the sort of intelligent engagement we should be having with this issue rather than talking about commemorating a pandemic. July would seem uh, the most obvious to me, uh, or early December, the 8th of December, as you're saying. Uh, but uh, July uh, really is uh, the obvious gap in uh, the summer when the weather is good and it seems like you've got this flurry of bank holidays and uh, all of a sudden there isn't one. 
Uh, yes, indeed, and obviously um, hospitality and holiday businesses would would very strongly mm. favour the the summer option, and and you know probably retailers, if there was going to be another one, would probably prefer one closer to Christmas. But these are precisely the sorts of issues you, you know that that we should be debating and understanding from workers and from the public in general. You know. If, if we are going to have another one, what, what is suitable and when should we have it? Mm. Ra- rather than the debate has been driven now by this narrative that we have to have an extra bank holiday this year to commemorate COVID and the pandemic, rather than posing the exact question you have, which and, and your view is no less valid than anyone else, I'd like it in July. Well, mm. well some other people would disagree with mm. you there, Michael. So oh, yeah. Yeah. how, how yeah. do we come to a sensible um, position on, on if we are going to expand the number of bank holidays when we have it? Mm. And, and I'm sure there's many who would be against the idea of another bank holiday, especially if you have to pay your staff double time. And uh, that will mean more depending on what you're paying your staff. Uh, You're concerned as well about an increase in the minimum wage. Well, yeah, I mean, uh, the the minimum wage discussion happens every year. And, you know, historically, the basis of the minimum wage and, and the theory behind its calculation is that, you know, it does track the cost of living. And for the first time in a considerable number of years now, we now do have inflation in the consumer price index. Mm. Of course, for year, for several years now, we've had really significant inflation in, in the bits that really count for people in terms of property price inflation and rental mm. inflation. But the consumer price index in August was showing a, a rate of 2.8%, which is, you know, we've, we've had several years of zero inflation or actual uh, slight deflation. Mm. So, so this is the first time we've come across this in quite a while. And on a like-for-like basis, therefore, you would expect the minimum wage to go from €10.20 per hour to €10.48. We have heard talk of of €10.50. But I suppose from our point of view, the problem is that that sort of increase does nothing for the low-waged and the unskilled. And there are far more, far greater difficulties that those uh, people encounter, most particularly around access to social and affordable housing. So when you hear people talking about the living wage, a lot of them, no doubt they are well-intentioned, but a lot of them don't realise that a great many people do not want to be paid the living wage of 12.50 an hour. Because if they do that, their income will break €25,000 a year. And Mm. once you go out over €25,000 a year, you'll lose access to social and affordable housing in in more than a third of the state. Mm. So that's one example of the way that our social protection system mitigates against people taking promotions, going for better jobs and getting um, higher wages, simply because of what they lose if they do so. Okay, we have to leave it there. We're out of time, but thank you for your time and thank you indeed for joining us on the programme as always this morning. That's Neil MacDonald, Chief Executive Officer of ISME, the Irish Small and Medium Enterprises Association. Michael, Michael Reed on, on LMFM. LMFM. Yeah, and thanks uh, to Pat in Navin who has been on uh, the phone to us. He's very disappointed that none of uh, the Fianna Fáil or Fine Gael councillors in County Mead 
are speaking out about the issue of the hospital. He says if there was an election on, you wouldn't be able to get them off the radio. He says the people of Mead elected them to speak up for them and they're failing to do this. It's not acceptable and they need to step up and make their voices heard. Thank you indeed uh, for your call to the programme. Uh, we haven't heard as yet uh, from any of the Fianna Fáil or Fine Gael councillors, uh, we haven't uh, managed to, to speak uh, to either of the ministers on the radio about this yet. Uh, they're hoping that at some stage this week they'll be able to make themselves available to talk to us about it. The HSE has said we've nothing more to add except that uh, if it uh, does happen, if they close the emergency department, if they take the ICO beds out, uh, it will mean uh, that the hospital will be safer, it'll be more efficient and uh, that uh, people will be served better by the decision if that's what they do. Uh, but when we ask for details, as you know, they've said we've nothing more to add to it. Uh, let's talk uh, to Dr Seamus McMenamin, who's a GP who's based in Navan. And a very good morning to you and thank you indeed uh, for joining us on uh, the programme uh, this morning. Uh, have you been hearing uh, this threat of the ED closing? Well, um, so there hasn't been any uh, communication with local GPs about this at all. So I suppose, like everyone else, it's the, the first we're hearing of it this morning. Um, so I suppose um, the way that I would look at this is that this is just the last in a series of um, attempts to downgrade the, the hospital. And, you know, we've seen the trauma bypass and, and we've seen, you know, the way that the surgical um uh, certain surgical operations being removed from the hospital, so people presenting for with appendicitis, they you know they're often mm. diagnosed and triaged in Avon, but then they're they're sort of moved to one of a, a, any number of five different hospitals depending on who will accept the patient. So, I, would I you see it as a downgrade? Uh, because the HSE say that it'll actually enhance the hospital; more services will be available through the hospital. Uh, but it, yeah, so it, it it is a downgrade, and they have been downgrading the hospital, you know, over a, a number of years. Um, and this is just the last in a, in a series of those steps. So I, I suppose with with COVID, what we've seen is the value of having um, having A and E um, present, because yeah. we know certainly a lot of our patients have uh, been admitted through the course of the pandemic, and the value of having um, ICU in Navan has shown that. You know, although you can plan for how you might want the health service to look and behave, the reality is things will happen that don't fit your your plans on paper. So, on paper, mm-hmm. you know, would the matter have been able to cope with our um, COVID patients over the past eighteen months? I don't think so. So, I think really you can't see it as anything other than a downgrade because, but it, but it, but it's already started and the process is ongoing and. You know, because we've seen, you know, that the, the, this is they've created the situation where they can say it's not safe because they they have underinvested, they have removed and cut various things over the years, and they've created this situation where they can turn around then and say, well, look, we don't have, you know, full time, you know, a, a consultant cover. We we don't have, you know, we don't we have locum um, doctors working because they've removed the training posts in in the hospital so that the only doctors who it can really work in A and E or, or, or locum doctors. So I think really they've created this set of circumstances over a long number of years, and they haven't. Uh, the plan has never changed. You know, so we we know we're the last on on the list from the Hanley report of hospitals to be downgraded. So the plan never changed. Mm. COVID interrupted it. 
other things interrupted it. Mm. And, and it was listed as one of 10 hospitals in a report called the Smaller Hospitals Framework Report from 2013. That's right, that sorry, yeah, should become a, a, level, a level two hospital, uh, which would mean that there wouldn't be an emergency department, there would be a medical assessment unit, uh, and there wouldn't be ICU beds as a result. Uh, and just going back to what the HSE is saying on paper, uh, because their statement says that uh, if this plan <laughs> under that report is implemented, it will mean more services provided safely and appropriately with better linkages to primary uh, continuing and social care. And they say that uh, it would also make our ladies safer, busier and more efficient for all and will further enhance linkages to the community, which is in line with Slauncha Care. Does that make sense to you, Dr. McMenamin? Well, I think, uh, you know, when you look at the other nine hospitals, what, what happened there was services were supposed to be upgraded in surrounding areas of the larger hospitals near them. And the reality was that didn't happen. And what happened was the trolley counts went up in those hospitals. So rather than being in a, a bed in Avon, um, you, you could end up in a, a trolley in Drogheda or somewhere else. So I, I don't know that the, you know, with, there have been improvements in the paramedics, you know, they're the most people who are in ambulances now have, have got the training to provide initial care. And mm. that probably is different from maybe 10 years ago when some of this was, was being discussed uh, before. But really, I don't think the, the transport links are there. You know, they talk about the golden hour in um, any medicine that, mm. you know, for heart attack, for stroke, for a lot of these things, you need to, to, to catch people early for to have better outcomes. And I suppose the question again is, do we have the, the ambulance service? Do we have the road network? Do we have the facility to get people to the matter or to Drogheda in time? Does, does the matter have the capacity? Because 10 years ago, the problem uh, was as it is now. And the concern about uh, the capability of Navin to treat people to the standards that would be hoped for uh, was not something that could be addressed, they said, because they said there wasn't the capacity in Blanchardstown or in the Lourdes in Drogheda. Now the focus is on the matter and that if patients have a heart attack, it's the matter that they will be brought to. Does the matter have the capacity for these additional patients? Well, again, I mean, they, 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 if you bring an ambulance and the ambulance service uh, take you on, on, on their, under their wing, they will bring you to the matter if, if it's cardiac, uh, they'll bring it to draw it if it's trauma. But the, most, the reality is most people present themselves and what we saw when they removed surgical services in Navin, most people went to Drogheda and the trolley count in Drogheda went up. Um, so I suppose the question is, again, you, you can say on paper that people should know they're supposed to go to the matter, but um, I don't think the, ma- the matter covers a large catchment area mm. for North Dublin. So, you know, the the issue isn't, you know, they, there was discussion, could they have, you know, special wards for Navin, you know, patients from our ladies coming up and they're not going to do that. So really you'd be competing with uh, everyone else in North uh, Dublin, inner city Dublin for resources there. Mm. And there's no the space constraints in the matter, as we know from the discussion around the children's hospital when it was supposed to be cited there. The matter really doesn't have the capacity to expand in a way that probably could cope with with the number of patients. And again, you know, the the, the you know for an administrator to 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 look at the paper exercise of saying where where patients should go, the reality is they might say ninety five percent of patients will be accommodated very well. But if it's your if it's yourself or your yeah. parents or your family who are you know that five percent that may not get 
um, a better outcome. And people don't think like HSE officials. I mean, if you fall and break your arm, you go to the hospital. Uh, and yeah. uh, and you see that all of the time where you've people waiting 16 hours in Our Lady of Lourdes Hospital in Drogheda to be treated with a broken arm where they could have been seen in 40 minutes had they gone up the road to the Louth County Hospital in Dundalk. Well, we know, for example, that there are still people presenting to Monaghan Hospital um, where there hasn't been an uh, emergency department for a number of years because the, the instinct is if you're in a crisis, you're not you know, thinking uh, along the lines of I must look up the HSE website and see where my um, near, nearest appropriate place at the HSE of Tome should go. You go to the nearest hospital. And I think the concern is that, you know, the, the, the questions that I don't think have been answered are with the population growth in, in Mies over the last uh, um, number of years, the demographic shift. Um, we're now going to have a lot of people presumably working from home who wouldn't have been. So we're going to have to... You know, those old figures of 80% of people leaving me to go to work will change. And if something happens, they won't, you know, they'll be going to, to, to the hospital. And no one's really explained how those demographics have been factored in. To okay, all of well, nobody's talking to us, so that's part of the problem. Uh, we leave it there for the moment. Thank you indeed for joining us on the programme this morning. Dr. Seamus McMenamin is a GP based in Navin. We'll see you for our next programme tomorrow morning, God willing, at 9am right here on LMFM. Good morning. Bye-bye. The Michael Reed Show podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at lmfm.ie Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds. And they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear, and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. 
Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. 